चित्तस्य पदेन वाचाम मलम शरीरस्य च वैद्यकेन योपाकरोत्तम प्रवरम मुनीनाम पातंजलिम प्रांजलीरानतोस्मी I prostrate with folded hands before Patanjali who benefited mankind by delivering yoga for mind grammar for speech and by removing impurities of the body through medicine so now we will continue with our study of the Patanjali Yoga Sutra in the last class we were studying the significance of the pranava of omkara as has been described in the yoga sutra uh, the sutra's number was uh, 1.27 the 27th sutra of the first chapter indicated that tasya vachaka pranavah that the name of god is om that why this specific word has been chosen how this word is eternally associated with the concept of god and how this word apart from its significance apart from its spiritual significance it has some practical value that this is such a word which creates a wonderful calmness in us as this word is the least differentiated sound it's just like the sound of a gong when you strike a gong you will find that the sound gradually merges it just vanishes gradually and it creates a very soothing effect if while breathing out we can visualize that the sound is gradually is getting merged and while it is getting merged it is not coming out from the mouth as in the ordinary sound it is as if going to the crown of your head this we find as has been indicated in the commentary gives a special effect which helps to calm down the mind and easily it helps to attain concentration so when repeating the omkara it shouldn't be mechanical it in that word as in the last class we were discussing is encoded the concept of god if we keep that concept in our mind and continue repeating then a wonderful spiritual growth starts unveiling in our life uh that's the idea which will be spoken of in the next sutra in the 28 sutra we will refer to the text by sharing the screen
So this is the 28th Sutra, which we are going to study today. That once we have the clear about of God that was enunciated in the previous two sutras, that Klesha, Karma, Vipaka, Ashai, Apparamrishta, Purusha, Ishwar, that is untouched by the afflictions in the form of Raga, Dvesha, Abhinivesha. In this, in our life, you will find all our actions, the motivations behind the actions can be boiled down to these three afflictions. Either it is out of raga, it is out of obsession. We are highly obsessive to certain things of life and that drags us, that pulls us, that motivates us to the various actions which we are doing in our life or certain things we hate. Something, some things we are afraid of. Either it is obsession or it is the fight and flight response. That is the dvesha and the abhinivesha, which again motivates us to do particular type of actions out of dvesha, out of abhinivesha. So all our actions at last can be boiled down to be motivated by these afflictive factors. Who is God, who is eternally in the past, in the present, in future, is never afflicted by these afflictions of obsession and aversion and fear. You can, in uh, uh, modern psychological language, we say one is obsession and Dvesha of universe has the fight and the flight response. God is never, as is beyond ignorance, the question comes that yes, even an ordinary human being through the spiritual evolution can reach that state. A yogi can reach that state. Then what's the difference between Ishwara and the yogi who has reached that state? The difference is the yogi at certain point of time was bound, was because of the prevailing of the ignorance, was under the sway of the afflictions. The afflictions were motivating him for his actions. Yes, through the spiritual practices, he has gone beyond that. But in the past, at some point, he was influenced by the afflictions. So he, we cannot say that the yogi is eternally beyond the afflictions. Or maybe someone some of the purushas, some of the spiritual individuals, some of the individuals might be there, conscious, conscious principles might be there who are yet to fall under the sway of ignorance. But there is no guarantee. In future, they may come under the sway of ignorance. But for God is a purusha vishesha. He is a special purusha, unique purusha in the entire creation for kalpas together, for the cycles of creations together in each and every cycle. He is the one who is never bound, who is always beyond the ignorance. So that type of Purusha is the Ishwara who is never touched by the ignorance. So that was the one factor we studied. Klesha, Karma, Vipaka, Ashray, Apparamrishta is Ishwara. And another, the next Sutra which we studied is that in him, the omniscience becomes 
infinite. So that's the 25th sutra that we studied. Tatra nirati shayam sarvagyatva bijam. Means we all have that potency, that potentiality of infinite knowledge. But it is the afflictions which restricts our knowledge. We won't go to the further discussion how afflictions restrict our knowledge. It creates biases. And in the last class, you may remember that it's a very common uh, allegory used in Vedanta as well as in yoga. That there is a stump somewhere in the park in the twilight hours. The tree has been cut or it has fallen in some storm. Only the stump is remaining. Now that stump in the twilight hours because of the insufficiency of light is seen variously by the various peoples as per their afflictions, as per their biases. The one who came to the park in search of his beloved one, that they were most supposed to, they were supposed to meet there. And the person was in search of his beloved and seeing the stump, he is deluded. He thinks that is the beloved standing there. A small child after the play was over, the game was over, was in search of his parents. Now he have with the parents, he has to go back to home. She or she has to go back. And from a distance, the child sees it as his parents. The parent sees it as its child. A thief was running away in fear of the police, being, he was being caught by the police. And from a distance, the thief thinks the stump to be the police. And the police who was in search of the thief thinks the stump to be the thief. What actually this example indicates that as per our bias, the stump is stump. The true knowledge is it is a stump. But as per our afflictions, we create various bias and that limits our knowledge and our knowledge gets distorted. Though we all had that inherent power to see the thing as it is, the clashes has actually filtered our knowledge, has distorted our knowledge. But God through eternity was beyond clashes. So for in him, knowledge is infinite because there is no filtering factor. There's no clashes, so there's no filtering factor. So he's the omniscient being through eternity. And again, the question comes, then what about the yogi who through spiritual practice have reached that state? He also becomes omniscient. Yes, he also or she also becomes omniscient. But there was a time he or she was having limited knowledge. The knowledge was filtered because of ignorance when he or she was in the sway of ignorance. Through spiritual sadhana, they've reached the state where they're beyond the afflictions. Now they have attained that omniscience. But the time was there where the knowledge was limited. That's why that wonderful definition of Swami Vivekananda, education is the manifestation of perfection already in man. Religion is the manifestation of divinity already in man. That perfection, that divinity is already there. It is encapsulated. It is covered up because of the distortion, because of the ignorance that distorts, that biases, that creates the bias of and doesn't allow the knowledge to 
find expression in its uh, real sense, in its real uh, nature. It gets distorted, it gets filtered. Once that covering is removed, you get the real knowledge. In this world, whenever any real knowledge we get, we say it's a discovery. Like Newton discovered gravitation. The gravitation was not something which was not there before Newton. It was there eternally. It is one of the laws of nature. It was there eternally. But there was a covering of that knowledge for the human beings, for the humankind. We were not aware of that knowledge. What Newton did, he discovered, removed the covering. So the knowledge is something inherent. In Ishwara, it is inherent. It is always there as a human being. By removing the ignorance, we discover them. The more we discover, the more is our knowledge. For Ishwara, as there is no covering, there is no question of ignorance. For a yogi who has attained that state, a time was there who was not omniscient. Now he has become omniscient. Or the one who is yet to fall in the snare of the ignorance may be at present not under the sway of ignorance, but in future he may fall under that sway. But Ishwara is always through eternity, through all the cycles, an omniscient being. That's the difference between the Ishwara and a yogi. And another thing that omniscience speaks of power. The more knowledge you have, the more powerful you are. Because uh, all the, what you say, there's, there's that in English, the proverb is there, that knowledge is power. It's the power because uh, the moment you have the knowledge, you can use that knowledge to eject the satellites. It can go to the Mars. All the inventions speaks of knowledge expression as power. So then if Ishwara is omniscient, then he speaks of all powerful, now, a yogi who through spiritual practice have gone beyond the glaciers and has become omniscient, he also becomes all-powerful. So here yoga says another thing. This is the third difference between a yogi and a and, and God and the Ishwara. What's the difference? This third difference? That though uh, a yogi through spiritual practice may become omniscient, but he is doesn't have the omnipotence. Why? Because there will be chaos in the creation. If two persons, if two purushas are omnipotent, it will be like a car with two steering wheels. One wants to go to the right, one wants to go to the left. There will be contradiction of their wish and there can be a chaos. A car cannot be, have two steering wheels. So a Purush, a, a, a yogi through spiritual practice may become omniscient, but the omnipotence is only of Ishwara. So these are the basic three differences. In the first sutra, that Klesha Karma Vipaka, the difference was that Ishwara is eternally non-afflictive. The yogi, most probably before reaching that spiritual state, was motivated by the afflictions. Now he has gone beyond the affliction. That's the first. And then the second difference, Ishwara through eternity is omniscient. A yogi through the spiritual practice may have become omniscient. He was not so. And the third, omniscience speaks of omnipotence.
but that omnipotence is only attributed to Ishwara. It is that though a soul who has freed himself through the spiritual practice, through yoga, the yogi who has freed is omniscient, but he's not omnipotent. Because if there are two Purushas with omnipotence, there may be the clash of the way they want to run the show and there may be a chaos in the universe. So omnipotence lies only with Ishwara. There cannot be two president of a country. There cannot be two prime ministers. This has to be one because there otherwise will be the varied opinion. There will be a clash. So these are the very common way of justification through which yoga is describing the concept of Ishwara. So this is here we don't have the scope. We will find the concept of Ishwara is quite different in Vedanta. But uh, whatever may be the difference, we need not go to the technical aspect of it. Just for our spiritual practice, for a purpose, if we just understand the concept of Ishwara as has been enunciated in yoga, that itself will be quite motivating for us to just have the vritti sarupyata. The more I think of Ishwara who is beyond the klesha, my vrittis, my thought waves is reflecting the concept of Ishwara. I'm culturing that. I can never become one with Ishwara, but by culturing that the Ishwaratva, the uh, concept of divinity, gradually I, there's a transformation within me. So that's the thing for which we uh, always uh, resort to the contemplation of Ishwara. That brings the Vritti Sarupyata, this idea of Ishwara that is more and more cultured. And what you culture, that you become. So that's the uh, concept of Ishwara. That's why, that how much it is uh, really uh, 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 philosophically correct. We need not go to that. Uh, there, there is some subtle difference between the concept of Ishwara in yoga and Vedanta. We need not go to that immediately in future. If we have a scope, we can have one uh, separate class for that. But for, for the time being, the concept of Ishwara that has been described in yoga is itself quite sufficient for our spiritual practice by having that concept always in our mind while chanting Om. If we have that concept, that Om is Ishwara who is always beyond affliction, who is beyond all uh, afflictions, beyond the karma, beyond all the effects of karma, the beyond desires. He is having uh, no filtering factor for his knowledge. This itself will help us to purify ourselves by culturing that. And that way we start evolving spiritually. So that's the thing which is very important. And that's for that only the concept of Ishwara has been brought into picture in yoga. It's mainly, it is not just to describe a concept. Behind that concept, there is a factor which speaks of the practice. That this concept, if you keep in mind, that will help you to grow spiritually. That will be indicated in the 28th Sutra, which we are going to study now. What's that? Tat Japaha Tat Arthabhavanam. That whenever in our day-to-day -day life, it's not that I have to sit down and fix my hours for meditation. 
if I don't have time, you will find there are many, even sadhus who are busy with so many activities, but they make it a point now and then to chant Om. Even Swami Vivekananda, when he was in the West, he was so much busy in preaching the Vedanta. He was having an extremely busy life there. But you will find the reminiscences that now and then, even when he's conversing with the people, suddenly all the conversation will stop. He will chant either Shiva or Om. That is something which is Japa. That if I can have some separate time to sit down and do that well and good. But if it's not possible, as we have told in the very first uh, sutra, when we were studying the Ishwara Pranidhana, that what? That it is a process where it's the awareness which is important, not the particular practice. But the awareness of Ishwara is there in my day-to-day -day life. And just to keep that awareness in my mind, I go on repeating the, the name of Ishwara in the form of Pranavadhani Om. So if I do that, that itself will be helping me to spontaneously grow in my spiritual journey. It is a spontaneous growth. It's not that you will be jumping the steps which the Yoga Sutra will be spoken of. All the steps will be followed spontaneously, automatically, just by this process. So what the Sutra says, Tat Japa, repeat it, that Omkara, which has been spoken of in the previous Sutra, repeat it. And that repetition shouldn't be mechanical. Tat Artha Bhavanam. The concept should be behind the mind whenever I am pronouncing Om. In my day-to-day -day activity, whatever I'm doing, to keep the awareness of God, Ishwara, in my mind, with the chanting of the Om, either mentally or verbally. I chant it and just reflect on it with the thought or that is involved with that pronunciation. Now, what happens? Now, as I told, the concept of Ishwara in yoga is something very distinct. So here, I can never become Ishwara because he is a Purusha Vishesha. By repeating uh, the Omkara and thinking of the concept of Ishwara, what I am doing, in Vedanta they say that the moment you know Brahman, you become Brahman. Because you are already that. It is called Apti. But here this process is Prapti. It is not Apti. Because I can never become Ishwara. But I can attain something. What's that? Attain, attainment? So it is called Aham Graha Upasana. I can never become one with Ishwar. But the Ishwaratva is in me. Means all those uh, potentiality the, which the Ishwara has, that in the potential form is lying in me, is hidden within me. With this practice, that can just manifest. So in our scriptures, they speak of aham graha upasana, aham graha. We discussed it in some other context. It's a very nice concept, aham graha upasana. Vigraha, what is vigraha? When you are sitting in front of the altar, with a deity in the altar, you have an idea, the one who is sitting in the altar is all pure, is perfect. All the purity, all the perfection is imposed there. At the same time, I'm quite aware of the fact I am not that pure. I am not that perfect. I impose it on the 
deity in the altar and I'm quite satisfied with it. But now the yoga is saying that won't help me much in spirituality. I have to internalize that deity within me. Though I am not one with Ishwara, but I have to think that he is as if seated in my heart. Then what happens? That is known as Ahangraha Upasana. That the Vigra has been installed in your heart. Then what happens? That you become the shrine. The way we keep the shrine clean, the way we try to purify because where the God is, the place should be clean. So you have to keep your body, your mind clean. Ishwara is Klesha Karma Vipaka Ashray Apparamrishta. So I should also represent that. So now that Ishwaratva, that Ish, I can never become one with Ishwara, but that Ishwaratva starts manifesting in me. I get motivated. This is known as Ahamgraha Upasana. This, uh, we will use a wonderful analogy to understand what it is. As in some Karma Yoga class we were indicating that you will find there's some basic difference with Hinduism and with, uh, uh, with Hinduism with the other Abrahamic religions. All the Abrahamic religions you will find is highly disciplined. There's a church, all is a huge congregation. The prayer, when the prayer is going on, there's a wonderful resonance of rhythm. All are repeating the same prayer and it creates a wonderful atmosphere. In Islam, the same thing you would find, that all are just kneeling down, getting up and doing the same prayer and it creates a wonderful effect. A wonderful calmness prevails there. A wonderful ethereal atmosphere is created. But if you go for the Kumbha Mela, the biggest religious congregation in the world, you can never find such a huge number of people congregating for some celebration for some religious event, never even, there's no other, the biggest. But the peculiarity of that type of congregation is you will find there is no practice which is common to all. You go there, you will find each and everyone is having his own queer way of practicing their religion. They have their own queer uh, rituals, chantings, even the husband's way of relating to God may not be that similar to that of the wives. Each is having his own way. And that apparently gives the idea that, that there is no as such cohesive factor in this religion. It is all are uh, just having their queer ways of relating their uh, prayer to Ishwara. And it may give some negative impression, but we will make a big mistake if we just have an apparent look of what is going on. If you go deep into it, it actually speaks of this Aham Graha Upasana. What it is, to understand this, we will take the example, an example of a doctor who has three, four children. The doctor, after his practice throughout the day in the hospital, returns home. So he was wearing a white coat, he opens that white coat, keeps it aside. The stethoscope also he keeps aside, opens his shoes. And now he is relaxing. And all the children, the three or four of the children, they come running. 
one will take the white coat and wear it and go around the house as if the child that he the small child has is the doctor well, as if posing as if it is a doctor wearing the father's white coat is moving around the other child has taken the stethoscope and put it on his ears put it on his neck moving around and then another child came the common practice you will find the children never wear their own shoes it's always the elderly person's shoes they will wear and the this child now wears the father's shoes and is moving around if the father is having tie that also someone will be taking wearing it now it is all childish act just by wearing uh, the white coat or by taking the stethoscope or by wearing the father's shoes or the tie one doesn't become a doctor but the father is happy he knows very well by all these childish acts they are actually developing a motivation within that one day we have to become like our father a very reputed doctor so all these childish acts they are all queer acts childish acts varied acts they are not same someone is wearing the coat someone is uh, having the stethoscope someone is wearing the shoes all various uh, way of relating to their father these are all queer acts but behind all those acts those acts are not important behind all those acts the motivation is important that we have to become like our father so that's why how you relate to the divinity there we find that in yoga in hinduism there is no such regimentation no discipline you relate in your own way the way you feel either the way which appeals you you do it there is no harm in it it may appear apparently to be queer but the thing which it is doing it is creating that motivation and that motivation is enabling me to manifest the ishwaratva the divinity which is within me as swami ji defined nicely religion is the manifestation of the divinity inherent in man already in man i may not be sure but that ishwaratva to like ishwara to become klesha karma vipaka to have that omniscience to have that compassion is possible for me as a human it is there lying potentially hidden within me i can manifest that and for that this is the practice tat japa tat artha bhavanam this results in that aham graha upasana and you will find that when you are doing that in the in all our religious practice they say the heart is the best place think of your the ishwara as if enshrined in your heart why why this heart is so important you will find a wonderful thing i just i will just relate a incident in the life of swami vivekananda swami vivekananda was yet to become vivekananda he was narendranath visiting ramakrishna and another disciple of ramakrishna his name was turiyananda his name is swami turiyananda before his pre monastic name is hari so now hari maharaj he was yet to become a monk when he was visiting ramakrishna he was very austere for him spirituality was synonymous to austerity very very austere life is to lead that his food habits his sleeping habit everything was Uh, disciplined with some severe austerity 
apparently it appeared that he has no emotions. He lost his parents when he was young. So Swami Vivekananda also most probably and as Narin thought that way. One day he asked, do you love anyone? Turiyananda, uh, uh, as a pre-monastic, uh, his name was Hari. So Hari replied, yes, I do love. So whom do you love? Well, I lost my parents when I was young. But my elder brother's wife, she brought me up. She's, almost, she's like mother to me. I really love her. I revere her. I love her. Immediately, Naren told, you're really fortunate. If you had no one to love, I would have called you a wretched person with no scope for spirituality. It's a very wonderful thing, what Swamiji is saying. Even in our meditation, which we do in the guided meditation, you'll find, first we ask that try to think of someone you love. The moment you try to think someone you love, immediately you will find if any part of your body is having any feeling. It's the heart. Love flows from the heart. So first you think, if I ask, if we just say, meditate on God as if sitting in the heart, it makes no sense to many people. But if you say, do you love anyone? You say, yes, think of him. Immediately you will find the feeling is emanating from the heart. Now you got the center. Now let go of the person. Think of God sitting there. What happens, you know, that the, now the thought of the God gets related with that emotion which you already have for the love person. And once the, you can link God with that emotion, then only the meditation can become spontaneous. For most of us, meditation is never fruitful because we think it is a matter of will. That my mind is distracted, willfully I have to force and keep it focused in one thought. It's good at the beginning, but this should get converted into emotion. Otherwise, meditation can never be spontaneous. Just the way a mother, busy with all her duties, never forgets the child. Maybe the child is in school, is, is, uh, will return from the school late in the evening. Whatever the mother is doing, preparing food, she's constantly thinking of the child. Why? Because there's an emotional bond with the child. The mother never has to sit down and meditate on the child, lest she forgets the child. It never happens. It's always there. Where the emotion is, the meditation is spontaneous. The thought of the loved one is spontaneous. So that's why this tat japa tatartha bhavanam it is something which has to be done thinking of God enshrined in your heart. Then what happens? It first, that aham graha upasana happens. It develops you in the, you the motivation and it creates that emotional bond, making the meditation spontaneous. So this swadhyaya, swadhyaya means this repetition. This leads to the yoga, union with the divine, union with God. Another thing uh, which is very important that we as a Hindus, sometimes you will find that most of us have that idea of divinity with a form, Rupa. That also in yoga is described to be highly effective. That if you cannot think of Ishwara as something abstract, you can even imagine him 
in any form you like enshrined in your heart, how it helps. You will find that these explanations are very scientific. What they say is very important, that our thoughts have two components. Any thought is Nama and Rupa. The moment I am thinking of you, immediately your picture comes to my mind. Nama, Rupa goes together. So the thought has two components, the name and the form. So now when I, if I say that Ishwara is a beyond form, yes, it is correct as per the ultimate knowledge is concerned is beyond form. But now when I try to think of him just as a concept, as our thoughts have two components, the name and the form, what happens though I may be repeating Omkara or any other name of the Ishwara, which I have uh, internalized as my practice, you will find it happens very common that mechanical repetition is going on, but my mind is visualizing something else. So now the to make the meditation really effective, that let me take care of both the components of my thought, the form as well as the name. So there's no harm to think of Ishwara in a particular form. This will help to focus my mind, streamline my mind from all other visualizations. So this is the practice which can easily help me to make my mind ekagra, focused. So now you find that in the practice that someone told Buddha that you don't uh, most probably you are an atheist, you don't speak of God. What Buddha replied was something wonderful. I never speak of the ultimate truth. I speak of the way. People take the way to be the truth and that becomes the problem. And he gave a wonderful example. He told that a small, uh, the mother was trying to point out the moon to the small infant. The infant was in the lap of the mother and uh, at, they were outdoors and the mother wanted in the tropical climate in the evening, the mother wanted to point out to the moon. And this infant is so attached to the mother, it always stares at its mother's face. Now the mother told, see, there is the moon in the sky. See, they're up. And the child was still staring at the mother's face. It is yet to, it is yet to develop that focus. Now the mother forces, catches hold, catch hold of the chin of the child, turns it towards the index finger with which she is pointing to the moon. And at last she finds she is almost incapable of pointing, the, uh, showing the moon because the child's attention is on the tip of the finger. It knows only its mother. That's the personality. It happens with all our so-called avatars, all the divine incarnations. They come to point to the truth and we get fixed to the index finger taking that person to be the truth so that happens with all of us here also you will find when they're speaking of ishwara as a concept but at the same time they're speaking of a visualization we forget that maybe this is not the ultimate this is the index through which we can realize the truth and we take the index to be the ultimate reality and that's how we get deluded. But if you can understand that in the proper context, you will find it is actually a very scientific process, process speaking of 
this spiritual evolution. If you can follow it, it can lead us to the spiritual evolution very scientifically. So now even this, that though this, uh, this Tadjapata Dartha Bhavana, this Sutra is small, but it has various layers of understanding, which we will try to discuss. Now we will go to the next Sutra, the 29th Sutra. What it is? Now, Tat, by this practice, when you go on practicing Ishwara, or thinking of Ishwara, practicing the contemplation of Ishwara by Japa, by repeating Omkara and thinking of its meaning, what it results in, what's the result? The result is spoken of in the 29th Sutra. Tataha Pratyak Chetana Adhigamaha Api Antaraya Abhava Cha. Two things happen. Pratyak Chetana. But constantly we are, our awareness is of the outside things. That is Parak. So by contemplating on Ishwara, for the first time you are indrawn. You try to go to the source, the conscious principle, which really defines you. That without being, without getting identified with the knowables, the things to be known in the outside world, I just become identified with the witness consciousness of the knowables. There is something which is witnessing all these knowables. I go within and I become aware of my real nature. So that is the thing, Pratyak Chetana. It helps us to get identified with the real me. That is not only the thing. Api Antaraya Abhavacha. In our spiritual journey, you will find a lot of obstacles come in the way. In the form of disease, in the form of doubt. You will find they are just vanishing. You don't know how it is vanishing, but it vanishes by contemplating aware of the concept of Ishwara. You go more within. And not only that, the external obstacle starts falling off. So these are the two effects which we find uh, which uh, uh, follows Ishwara Pranidhana. So Tata, from that, Tata means from that is gained. Adhigama. Adhigama means is gained. What? the realization of the individual self, the Pratyak Chetana, and the obstacles are resolved. Antaraya Abhavacha. Now this word Pratyak has two meanings. One meaning is that which is inherent in every being. Now though we are, as we are telling that though we are not one with Ishwara, but the Ishwaratva to become more like Ishwara is something inherent in all of us. In that sense also, we can take the word Pratyak that, that can also be the meaning. So the first meaning, that which is underlying every being as potentiality. Every Purusha has the potentiality to be Klesha, Karma, Vipaka, Ashri, Apparamrish. We all can become like that. Though we are in the bound, in the spell of ignorance, we can evolve, we can go beyond that. We can become non-afflictive like Ishwara. So that inherent capacity is in all of us. So that's the Pratyak. One meaning of one of the meaning of the pratyak. Hence, Ishwaratva, not Ishwar, Ishwaratva, or the nature of Ishwara is underlying as potentiality in every being. Thus, this potentiality is pratyak in one sense. In another sense, the Sanskrit word pratyak means moving within, in contrast to parak, which is moving out. 
So this has been wonderfully described in one of the Katha Upanishad mantras. It's a very famous mantra. Uh, just let me repeat it. Paranchi khani vyatrinat swayambhu tasmat parak pashyati na antaratman kaschit dhirah pratyagatman aikshat avritta chakshu amritatvam ichchan. So what it means? Paranchi khani vyatrinat swayambhu. Swayambhu means the Lord. The Lord Swayambhu, the word is very significant. The one who exists by his own right. Swayambhu. There is no cause of his creation. He is. He is eternally there. He has inflicted our senses. Khani is the senses. Kha means ears. And Khani is the plural. Means ears and the other sense organs. By the word Khani means all the sense organs. The ears, the eyes, the nose, the taste, the tongue skin all the five senses the lord have injured them in such a way that it always sees outside it always is focused in the outside happenings of the world it never turns within the smart parak pashyati that word parak means moving out na antaratman it is not going inside Kaschit dhira pratyak atman aikshat. That the word pratyak means within. Kaschit dhira. There are a few fortunate ones, the wise ones, the calm ones. They, in their attempt to see the one who is within, the individual self which is within, goes within. Kaschit dhira pratyak atman aikshat. The atman which is pratyak inside, pratyak atman aikshat. Avritta chakshu. Closes the eyes, Amritatvam Ichan, to attain immortality. The one who is within is immortal. Our attachment, our identification with the things, with the psychophysical existence, gives us a feeling as if I am undergoing change. But there is no change in me. The real me is eternal, is unchanging, is the Purana Purusha, is always the same. So to go within, we have to stop moving out. When I was in India, very nice, even I think here also, uh, for some, uh, uh, you know, that motivational classes from the, in, in India, the jail, in the reformatory jails, centers, the jails, the, there they will be approaching us that why not some that weekly once or monthly once you come, to address the inmates here. Let them also be aware of all these spiritual ideas that will help them, that will help them to reform. So we used to go. And for the first time when I visited one of these jails, very interesting, I found there are two gates. When you are about to enter, both the gates are locked. When you are about to enter, before opening the outside gate, first they ensure whether the inside gate is locked. They will ensure that has to be locked first. They will lock the inner gate and then only they will open the outer gate. Now you enter between the two gates. Before opening the inner gate, they were unlocking the inner gate. Now they will ensure the outward, the outside gate is locked. When the outside gate is locked, then only they will open the inner gate. Now you can go inside. So this is a measure so that none can run away. 
the two gates are there when the outside gate is open the inner gate is locked you are between the out the outside gate is locked then only the inner gate is open both the gate is never open at the same time the same thing happens here in our psychophysical existence these five senses are the external gates and there is a gate in your heart there is a gate we don't know it is always locked because all these external gates are always open to which we are this as if devouring the entire world getting identified with them what's the way to open the uh, gate which is within which is in your heart first we have to close these external gates that's what is indicated by the word avritta chakshu you have to close them then only this heart's gate can be opened you know the indian shrine they say this all the hindu temples if you go a wonderful thing you will find that sometime you will find that the uh, sanctum sanct uh, uh, sanctorum's door the garbhagriha's door is closed and you ask why no the, the some offering is going on so that also is a wonderful idea in uh, belumat you will find that there are nine gates nine doors around the sanctum sanctorum they actually speak of the nine openings two eyes two ears two nose means six mouth seven and the organ of evacuation and the organ of regeneration this is the other two openings it's nine these nine gates are there so the sanctum sanctorum also has these nine gates when you have to offer something to the deity sitting there those gates has to be closed why there cannot be communion with the one who is sitting in your heart unless these doors are closed so this gives the idea of parak and pratyak so here with the ishwara pranidhana this diving within happens naturally the more you commune with god the concept of god the one who is klesha karma vipaka then what happens it becomes it becomes conducive to the attainment of the concentration and discrimination because of the vritti sarupyata because you also get identified with the concept of ishwara you start culturing that that concept getting internalized immediately changes your way of living your nature more and more you start identifying yourself with the one who is winning the pratyak instead of getting identified with the things outside you start becoming identified with the witness consciousness and you get i am identified with the knowables so that's the idea which has been spoken of when they are speaking of pratyak chetana adhigama with the help of ishwara pranidhana it happens spontaneously as has been spoken here so ishwara so now what is that uh, that as a conclusion to the discussion what we can say ishwara is a calm composed being engaged in the contemplation of self so his pranidhana is conducive to the attainment of concentration and discrimination or viveka which ultimately leads one from identification with the knowables to the witness consciousness unidentified to all knowables so that's the one of the result which follows from ishwara pranidhana the other thing is 
अंतर अभाव अंतराय मेनी हिंड्रेंसेस आर देयर स्पिरिचुअल लाइफ दे स्टार्ट फॉलोइंग ऑफ नाउ वी विल शेयर द स्क्रीन फॉर अनदर पावर पॉइंट प्रेजेंटेशन वी विल क्लोज दिस एंड शेयर अनदर टू गो टू द नेक्स्ट सूत्र we will just have a uh, that uh, the literal translation of that sutra most probably the discussion will be followed again in the next class so let us go to the sutra and refer to the sutra which has been spoken of so this is the 30th sutra so what are the obstacles which has been spoken of uh in this sutra which can be obliterated which can be removed which gets removed automatically because of ishwara pradhana so what are those impediments vyadhi is the first stiyana is the second samshaya the third pramada the fourth alasya the fifth avirati is the 6th bhranti darshana is the 7th alabdham bhumikatva is the 8th anavasthitvani is the 9th chitta vikshepacha antaraya so this uh nine types of chitta vikshepa this distractions uh, 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 distractions has been spoken of as the impediments for spiritual progress which are removed obliterated ishwar pradhana so what are they vyadhi is the disease restlessness in spiritual life when we try to concentrate our mind we find like a spring it is just revolting it just wants to again go back to its monkey state of existence the monkey mind that restlessness that is the stiyana and then doubt comes very often whether these all practices have any meaning whether the spiritual truths has been spoken of really has meaning or it is all the imagination of a fertile brain all those doubts come lack of proper understanding the pramada even if i don't have the doubt sansaya the way i understand is something there is lot of fault in it it's i don't understand it properly there is lot of gap in my understanding so that is the lack of proper understanding is pramada and even if i have some good understanding then lethargy comes alasya i don't feel like practicing and even if i am practicing i cannot get rid of the old bad habits that is the non abstination and then in this situation sometimes we may get a glimpse of some higher spiritual knowledge and i think i have attained everything that is bhranti darshana the deluded notion about attainment that i have attained and then sometimes i i am not deluded i am aware of my non attainment is alabdham bhumikatva i attend and again i fall back though i attend to certain extent again i fall back so that is alabdham bhumikatva that alabdham bhumikatva very nicely sri ramakrishna used to give an example there some small children mischievously what they did they tied one piece of brick piece of stone on the tail of a mongoose that the mongoose hole the where it is to stay was bit up the wall now when it was roaming about it never felt the weight of the brick but the moment it tried to reach to the hole the weight of the 
brick, the brick, the weight of the stone, we was pulling it down again and again. So that is the alabdham bhumikatwa, that we feel that we are progressing to a certain extent, but the old habits pulls us down again and again. And that's what has been spoken of as the non-attainment and falling away from the stand when I obtained. I fall down and I cannot attain the state which I have attained uh, once. That is non-attainment of that state. So all those things are, all these impediments are something that any spiritual practitioner is aware of, which is highly frustrating. We are sometimes think that most probably we can never get rid of it. My samskaras are not sufficient to really uh, fight against these impediments and to get established in spirituality. Here the Yoga Sutra is confirming to the fact that Ishwara Pranidhana can help us to get rid of these, all these obstacles spontaneously. Gradually they get removed without any conscious attempt on my part. So one by one, we will take up that Vyadi, that how Ishwara contemplation, that uh, Ishwara Pranidhana, the special type of contemplation on Ishwara, which till now we have discussed, can really help us to get rid of disease. It has been found that many will find miraculous cure just by faith. Know it for certain, it actually speaks of a science behind it. It is not something miraculous. There is a science behind it. It really happens that Yoga Sutra will be discussing that. So we will take all these impediments one by one and try to find out that how Ishwar Pranidhana helps us to transcend all these impediments. So with this, we stop our discussion today. Namaskar Swamiji. Thank you again. Good night. Good night. Hari Om Swamiji. Hari Om.